Lord, we, uh, we pause to lift our eyes above whatever may be whirling in our hearts at this moment or at this time in our lives or in the nation or the world around us. And we take our eyes off of ourselves and off of what's around us and put them on you because in the end, you are that which we need most. And specifically this morning as we fix our eyes on you, we do so inviting you to bring us more deeply and into an understanding and an experience of your love for us through Jesus. Lord, we open your word, we open your heart, our hearts, and uh, we are prepared to have us you speak, to have you speak to us and to transform us by the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, good morning, Covenant family. Um, just to remind you, to catch you up a little bit on where we've been over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how we as the, the leaders of the church believe that God is calling us to be defined more by the love of God than by anything else. To be a church that is known in this community by its love. That we would be people who are not just informed by but that we are people who would be defined by the love of God. But as we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks, the starting point for that pursuit is we kind of follow the Spirit of God into learning together what it means for us to be a people defined by love. The starting point can't be there. It can't be with our own efforts to go out into the community and try to be uh, lovers of people and difference makers in that sort of way. The starting point has to be with the love of God for us. As it says in 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. So it's that first, that previous love that he has for us that we have to spend some time with. We can never become a community that's defined by love unless we are established in and defined by and filled with the love of God. And then we are able to love the people that God places around us in the community, in the church, in the world, with the outpouring, with the overflowing of the love that we've experienced from God. So we're starting off in this adventure, this venture of learning what it means to be a community defined by love by asking God to establish us in his love for us. And then we'll ask him to teach us how to become more effective as ones through whom God pours his love into the lives of the people that he puts around us. So that's why we're beginning the year by focusing on Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. So in the, in the pew racks in front of you and in the seats there in front of you, um, you will each find um, a bookmark that has Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 17 on it. You may think you already have this, but you don't. Um, Pull one of, every one of you, pull one of these out, please, and have it in your hand. These are new bookmarks. They're different than the ones we gave you a couple weeks ago. We just um, cleaned up a couple of typos. We also made the font a bit more legible, um, so it's a little bit easier to read. So the gray one is the one you want to be working with. As Michelle put it, toss the teal, grab the gray. 
Um, so let's use this gray one as we go forward. And if you need more copies, we have them at the connection desk in the back of the sanctuary and also at the reception desk. So get however many you need. And we are asking the entire church to do four things with this passage of scripture. The first thing is to pray this every day for yourself and for the whole church, for the church family. To pray this passage every day for one another. Secondly, to commit it to memory. And as you're praying it, that will happen. It more and more will become something. But you will have to be a little bit intentional. Just take it bit by bit and repeat it, write it out, and it'll come to you quickly. The third thing we want to encourage you to do is to do some of your own study on the passage to become more familiar with it. And then the last thing is to talk about it when you're together with other people from the church family. And just talk with one another about the impact that it is having on you to be praying this prayer for the church on a daily basis. So um, would you make that commitment together with us? We feel like this is really, really important. In fact, we feel like it's the most important thing we can be doing as we are led by God into this venture of learning what it means to become a community of love. We don't believe that we'll understand God's love better or experience it more deeply just by teaching on it and trying harder. Understanding this passage and other ones like it is important, but it's going to take more than that. Paul in this prayer talks in five different places about asking God to unleash his strength and his power to make it possible for us to grasp the love of God. We will never understand God's love as a result of a project, but only as an answer to prayer. That's why we're asking the whole church family to pray this for one another every day. The only way we'll ever enter into God's love more deeply is if God does that work and we say yes to it. We cooperate with it, not if we try to muster it up. So, Lord, we just pause and say, Lord, yes to that. We open our hearts up to you, our lives up to you, and we pray that you would pour your love into us and with it pour an understanding of the, the width and breadth and depth of that love into us so that we would uh, come through this series really as people transformed by your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So with this still in your hand, let me just kind of walk you through with it and kind of reorient you to how the passage unfolds. Paul begins this passage of scripture by talking about the exuberant way that he is approaching the Heavenly Father in prayer on behalf of the Ephesians. That's the top block of text. Then he tells them the three specific prayer requests that he is making for them, and those are the next three blocks of text. First, that they would enter into God's love, or more accurately, that God's love would enter into them. Secondly, that they would grow in understanding God's boundless love for, for them and what it's really like. And then third, that they would know God's love in a personal and experiential way and ultimately in a transformational way, in a way that leaves them changed as a result of their encounter with the love of God. And then in the final section, he ends with a word of praise. So I'm just going to read through this passage slowly now, and I invite you to read along with me out loud as I read this section by section. But after each section, I'm going to pause. And I'm going to ask you during that time of silence, in response to that part of the prayer that we've just read, to put it in your own words, make it into a prayer for you, for the people sitting next to you, a prayer for the congregation, but especially use that pause of silence, say, yes, Lord. Do that work in me. 
and then we'll go on to the next section. So just saying again, I'll read it out loud, I'll pause between sections, invite you to respond to it with prayer, with your yes to God, and your reiteration of that prayer for the church. It's okay if it's a little bit messy. All right, so let's walk through this. It'll be in your hand and also up on the screen. First section, verses 14 and 15, read with me. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now let's just pause and pray. Next section, verses 16 and 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let's pray in silence. Next section. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Next section, verse 19. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And the last section, verses 20 and 21. Let's say this with some exuberance, this expression of praise to God. Now to him who is able to do more than than we all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's circle back around to Paul's first request, which we find in that second block, verses 16 and 17. Say this with me. It's up on the screen or say it from memory. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power by, through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. As we said last Sunday, Paul makes it really clear that all of God's loving designs for humanity center on Jesus. The love of God and the Son of God are inextricably linked. We just cannot make any sense of the love of God apart from considering who this Jesus is and what he did. Paul says being rooted and established in the love of God begins not with learning new information, but with encountering a person, the person of Jesus Christ. In this part of the series, we're exploring three aspects of this, this initial focus on the person of Jesus is the way we learn about the love of God. Last week, you may remember, we focused on how Jesus came and lived among us to reveal the loving heart of God. When we see Jesus, we are looking into the face of love. That's what the incarnation is all about. This week, today, we'll be exploring how Jesus died in our place to reconcile us to the loving heart of God. That's what the crucifixion is all about. And next Sunday, we'll pull all of this together and, uh, in this, this first request, and we'll focus on the stunning significance of Jesus rising from the dead so that he could reside in our hearts. And that's what the resurrection is all about. 
So I've asked three volunteers if they would come up and give me a hand and just kind of uh, giving us a visual picture of this. So would the three of you come on up, up here, please? So the, to the congregation, as these three willing participants are coming forward, uh, let me just say this. I, I don't want us to approach this with our heads, conceptually, as sort of, you guys can come stand over here, please. Thanks. Um, I don't want you to be approaching this in terms of spiritual theory. I want you to put yourself in this picture and allow yourself to experience this afresh or experience this for the first time this morning. Okay, so let's set this up. Um, this is Spencer Kelly. This is Spencer's dad, conveniently, Aaron Kelly. And, uh, and this is Casey Schomer. Sorry, I was saying Schoenbrunn. I don't know where that came from. Casey Schomer. So um, I'm going to ask you, Aaron, if you would be God this morning. Um, thank you. <laughs> we are doing typecasting for this, but only for one of the three people. And it's not you. So, um, so God will have you come stand over here. Um, Casey, you are going to be humanity. You're going to come stand over here. You are typecast. You are all of us. So in this scenario, this is us. This is you. And uh, Spencer, you're going to be God's son. So let's have you stand over there. <laughs> that works out kind of well. All right. So um, to remind you, last Sunday, we talked about how God in love created humanity to be in relationship with God so that God could have a loving relationship with him. But there's a problem that we talked about. There is this barrier that's between us and God. And the barrier we talked about is this physical barrier. Here's humanity. Come on over here a little bit closer. Um, so here's, here's humanity. <laughs> Good, I like that. Um, here's humanity um, bound by physicality, finite. Uh, this is a right here, right now, and nowhere else. Only through my five senses do I make sense of reality person. This is us. And here's God on this side of this physicality barrier who is invisible. Because God is invisible, he's taking off his invisibility cloak so we could see him in this moment. So because God is invisible, <laughs> I like that. That's good. Um, <laughs> Casey, I love what you're doing too. Okay, because God is invisible, God is inaccessible to physical humanity. We can't see him, we can't touch him, we can't hear him. And so there's this uh, gap between us. He is everywhere, but it seems like he's nowhere. So let me start off with you, and you've already shown us this well, Casey. Okay. But um, here, let me grab a microphone. Um, I have Addison's microphone here. Okay, so, okay, um, so tell me, tell me um, how does it feel as you are trying to uh, penetrate past this barrier? How does it feel that this barrier exists between you and God? I mean, it's obnoxious because you want to break down the barrier, but it's very sturdy and there's nothing really that you can do from this side to get to that side. And you just answered my other question. Is there anything you can do? Nothing. I, I can't, I, there's nothing in my limitations as a human being that can get me over here. All right, so God, um, you created humanity to be in a loving relationship with you, but you are invisible to them. How do you feel about this barrier between you and humanity? Um, I wish they could see me, and I long to be on that side with them. Is there anything that you can do about this barrier? You, sold, you said that these questions weren't going to be difficult. 
<laughs> okay, um, let, me, let, me just, let me just help you out a tiny bit here. So, is there anything that you can do to, about this barrier? I could send an emissary. What a great idea. Okay, send your emissary. Go be with them. I love it. All right, great, thank you. Okay, so, um, so what we said is that um, because God sent his son, we look at the face of his son and we see the face of God. We look at his actions, we hear his words, and God's love, his tenderness, his affection for us, his pursuit of, of the, the insignificant and the unimportant is all fleshed out before us by humanity, or in, in front of humanity through Jesus the Son. So um, how do you feel about the fact that now there is an emissary by whom you can come to know God? Well, I think it's, it's fantastic because now I have a tangible way to actually see God. Awesome. And so, um, God the Son, how do you feel about being over here? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm glad that I can help. I'm glad that I can help my father in what he wants. He wants to be with humanity, and the only way he can do that is through me. And so I'm glad that I can come here and be with humanity as God and as human as one. What a great answer. Okay, hang on. Just, I'll let you hold that for a sec. Okay. All right, so, so we would think at this point that we get to just move the barrier right and we're all done. The problem is that there's another barrier. We talked about the physical barrier between God and humanity, but there's another barrier, and that's a moral barrier. Humanity has turned its back on God, and humanity... Uh, in rebellion against God, has toppled into a life lived for self rather than for God. So there is a moral dilemma now because God is a holy God who can't tolerate the presence of sin. Even though he's a loving God, he cannot tolerate the presence of sin. Somehow, this sin needs to be paid for. So... Um, God the Father, how do you feel about the fact that there is a, a barrier of sin that stands between you and the very people that you created to be in love relationship with you? I would say that I feel somewhat helpless because I want them to choose to love me. I can't make them love me, but I want them to choose to love me. So there's this, you know, dilemma. I think telling God this that C.S. Lewis once said, it's kind of funny to quote C.S. Lewis to God, but he, he, said, um, he said it is the terrible compliment that God gave humanity that he doesn't force them to love him. So there's this barrier that's between you and the people that you love that is impenetrable because of your holiness. So um, let me ask you, you came over here to reconcile these two, but now there's this barrier that stands there and the only way the barrier can be torn down is if somebody pays with their life for this relationship to uh, become possible. And the only person who can pay with their life, you can't do it, is you're paying for your own sin. So the only person that can do it is you. Tell me what you feel as you look at this dilemma. Well, it makes me a little you know, like scared of what 
happen, uh, what's going to happen. Like, I mean, I already know what's going to happen. Told me. Uh, he said, this is the plan I have for you, and um, I'm sad that it has to happen, but um, I know why it has to happen, and I'm willing. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Casey, Spencer, Aaron, thank you. You guys can go down. So when we see Jesus, we see the face of God, but there's still this barrier between us and God, which is our sin. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Or as the contemporary English translation puts this, Your sins are the roadblock between you and God. That's why he doesn't answer your prayers or let you see his face. So addressing the first barrier, the physical barrier, required the birth of Jesus. But addressing the second barrier requires something more. It requires the death of Jesus, which the Father, in sending his Son, and the Son, in being sent by the Father and embracing the mission, both willingly did, as Spencer so beautifully articulated. Let me just remind you why this Jesus-in-my-place sacrifice was necessary. God loves us. Without condition, without exception, God so loved the world. But holiness is one of the core attributes of God, too. Right along with his love. God is as holy as he is loving. And he doesn't alternate between those two. He is always holy and always loving, which is what put God and humanity in this dilemma. Because that means the holiness of God means that God cannot tolerate the presence of sin in that which he loves. In God's economy, there's no sweeping sin under the rug. It needs to be dealt with. It can't be overlooked. It needs to receive what it deserves. The sad truth is that every one of us justly deserves our loving God's holy anger. To put it in really simple terms, the sin needs to be paid for by someone. All sin needs to receive its fair penalty, its just punishment. And we, we have that sense of justice built into us as one's created in the image of God. We understand that. The penalty has to fall somewhere. The fair consequence and the just penalty of our turning our back on God is for us to honor that decision and turn his back on us. To separate himself from us, both in this life and in the life to come, which is hell. But God made us to be in a love relationship with him. He is unwilling to let our sin have the last word. 
So listen to this next part of Isaiah chapter 59. It says, the Lord looked and was displeased. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene in this situation where our sins separate us from God. It says, so his own arm achieved salvation for him. In love, God the Father sent his son to die on the cross in order to bear our penalty and redeem us from our sin and purchase our forgiveness as people who have offended God's holy character and rejected his loving rule. And God the Son gladly took on the mission. John chapter 10, verses 11 and 18. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, elaborates. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for an exceptionally good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while our backs were still turned toward him, Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. As the expression and outworking of God's love for us, Jesus willingly took our place, the righteous in exchange for the unrighteous, and he bore upon himself the penalty that we deserved in order that we might be freed of the penalty of our sin and freed of the guilt and of the shame that comes hand in hand with that sin and in order that we might be declared innocent in the eyes of God. And that becomes a reality for each of us individually when we turn from a life that's lived for ourselves and out of our own resources and we put our confidence in Jesus as our rescuer and we, we receive his gift of forgiveness and new life. But the ultimate goal of Jesus' death on the cross was not just to demonstrate God's love by redeeming us, purchasing our forgiveness with his life. It was to bring us into God's love by reconciling us to God. Let me say that again. The ultimate goal of Jesus' death on the cross was not just to demonstrate God's love by redeeming us. It was to bring us into the experience of God's love by reconciling us to God. It sounds heretical, but there is a sense in which it is accurate to say that Jesus did not die for our sins. He died to bring us into relationship with God. That was his mission. That was his purpose. That's why he came. And our sins were the thing that were in the way of that relationship with God. So he took care of those sins in order to bring about our reconciliation. He exchanged his life for ours to purchase our forgiveness in order to make reconciliation with God possible. If we seek to explain what happened on the cross without anchoring it in the love of God for us, if we just talk about it, some sort of an equation that deals with the wrath of God and, and the cross and our sin, and we don't talk about the love relationship that God desires to have with us that lies behind every part of what the cross was about, then we have not understood the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus is the door for us into relationship with God. He throws his arms wide on the cross in order to fold us into God's loving embrace. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. 
This word atoning is actually a word that was invented by um, the, the first English Bible translators to try to capture this idea of what was happening when Jesus offered his life in the place of our life in order to reconcile us to God. Atoning is literally at oneing. That's where the word came from. It means to make at one, to bring together, to unite, to reconcile. In fact, an earlier and clunkier version of the word that they tried out and then got rid of was at one making. God loved us and sent his son as an at one making sacrifice for our sin. Pretty clunky, but it's pretty clear about what's really going on. In love, the father sent his son to die for us. In love, the son agreed to take upon himself the penalty that we deserve in order to remove the wall that stands between us and God so that he can usher us into the loving heart of God, making it possible for us to enter into a relationship, a love relationship with a holy God without any barrier. We are told in Matthew's gospel, that at the, in Matthew chapter 27, that at the moment of his death, of Jesus' death, the massive foot-thick woven curtain in the temple that represented this divide between a holy God and unholy humanity, that curtain was torn in two from the top down, symbolizing the opening of the way into God's loving presence. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. It's a great passage to commit to memory and encourage you to think about doing that. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, offering himself as the sacrifice, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. A week ago, Saturday, Covenant co-hosted the welcome lunch for new international students who are starting at Purdue this semester. It's really pretty amazing when you think about it that we have 10,000 students from over 100 different countries two and a half miles from our front door as a church. Think of what it would mean if every one of us found a way to have some kind of meaningful connection with just one of those students. Through the International Friendship Program, through our World Welcome Ministry, or just through conversations that we strike up with students at Walmart or at Payless, like I saw Jim Cornelison doing a couple of weeks ago. Let me just also mention... Um, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 is such an important passage of Scripture that God has the entire church around this world living towards and God desires would be more and more of a reality for us. That's a description of a people, a single people of God who are made up of people from every tribe and nation and language and, and tongue. Every ethnicity, every nationality, every race gathered together as one unique transformed people of God. On this Martin Luther King uh, celebration uh, weekend, it is appropriate that we would remind ourselves as a church that God's intention is that the door would be open for people of all nations and races, and that, that we as the church would be taking the lead in moving towards racial reconciliation and unity in our society. Okay, so well, the reason that I raised this after those two asides, the reason I raised this about the welcome lunch is I gave a tour to the group after the lunch, and I brought them up in, here into this room, and I asked them to consider the two most important architectural features in this entire sanctuary. Here's what I told them they were. They might not be what you would think of. First, I took them up here to this platform, and I reminded them that symbolically, this platform represents the exalted presence 
of God in our midst. And I said that I believed that the most important architectural feature in this whole building are these steps. Because symbolically, they represent the fact that Jesus, through his death on the cross, made a way, gave us access into the loving presence of God. Then I took the group back to the back of the sanctuary, uh, and, and I said, these doors back here, these are the second most important architectural feature in this building, from my perspective. Because they are a further expression of these steps, that, that this access is not something we have for ourselves and keep for ourselves, but the doors are open, and anybody in all the world who desires to come into a love relationship with God uh, has that opportunity available to them. That, the way is open for them. And then I also pointed out the world map and said that that's a reminder for us each time we go out. Those doors are every bit as important for us as a believing community, reminding us that God sends us out into the world to live out the love of God in, as a way of communicating the message of the love of Christ to the people that God places around us. In love, the Father sends the Son as an atoning sacrifice to bring us into his loving embrace. And through Jesus, he has removed every barrier so that we could have full access to him. So I want to conclude by having us just think again about this in personal terms, in really personal terms. I want to do that by telling you a true story about a man named Gerald Johnson. Gerald Johnson was one of the leading fighter pilots in the Pacific during World War II. A couple of weeks after the war ended, Johnson and his co-pilot and two additional crew members took off in a B-25 bomber on a courier run from Japan, where they were based, to deliver a top-secret document to General MacArthur's headquarters in Manila in the Philippines. On the return flight, they had two additional passengers with them, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Underwood and Lieutenant Herbert Schaefer. By the time they took off for the return flight, it was already nighttime. And as they approached the island of Honshu in Japan, where they were based, the plane flew into an unreported typhoon. They immediately became hopelessly lost. And then they were cut off from all radio contact. They were completely on their own. Just picture that. So in the pitch black, in the whipping winds, in the rain, driving against them. Johnson tried to descend to try to figure out where they were and see if he could find some place where he could put the plane down safely. But as he did that, they just narrowly missed flying into a mountain. In fact, one of their wings clipped a few trees on the, the top of this mountain, and he was able to get the plane back up into the sky. But then they just began to circle and to look in what became obvious to everyone were increasingly vain attempts to find a place to land this airplane. Finally, when the fuel was nearly gone, Johnson gave up looking and he gave the bailout order. That was when the two passengers told Johnson that they had failed to bring their parachute. So there were only four parachutes between the six of them on that plane. One of the crew members in back suggested drawing straws. But Johnson said, absolutely not. I am in command of this aircraft. So he, as he and his co-pilot took turns flying the plane, each of them got up and took off their parachutes and gave them to these two ill-equipped passengers. Jim Nolan, the co-pilot, gave his to Lieutenant Schaefer. Gerald Johnson 
gave his to Lieutenant Colonel Underwood. Then Johnson brought the plane down low along the coastline as best as he could tell where it was, and the four men bailed out. All four survived. The plane disappeared into the storm and was never seen again. Now just imagine that you were Lieutenant Colonel Robert Underwood. Think of what it was like to pull on that parachute and cinch down the straps as you are in the dark, in the light of the instrument panel, looking up at the outline of the man who just exchanged his life for yours. Think of what it was like when you stood safely on the earth again after that hellacious flight that should have been your death. What would you have felt when you learned that Johnson didn't make it? That his act of sacrifice cost him his life. How would you view Gerald Johnson from that time forward? What would happen in your heart every time you heard his name? And how would you view each day of your life from that day forward? What depth of gratitude would well up in your heart? What sort of indebtedness would shape your outlook on life? What sort of sense of responsibility would you feel to live each day as a response to the gift of your life having been unexpectedly and undeservedly given back to you? You and I, we are all Robert Underwood. And Jesus is our Gerald Johnson, who gave us his parachute and went down with the plane so that we could live. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Those of you who have already come to recognize the death of Jesus as being on your behalf and in your place, life for life. Those of you who have already taken the parachute that has been handed to you, who've been reconciled to your loving God, what would you want to say to him now? Just in a moment of silence, what is your response of awe and gratitude? And if you've never opened your heart to the love of God in Christ before today, I invite you, I urge you to take the parachute that is being held out to you. There will come a time when it's too late, when the flight that is your life comes to an end. So open your hand, open your heart today. Take the weight of your life off the, the, the shaky and, and inadequate foundation of your own making and put the weight of your life onto him. Trust in him, receive his gift of life and love. Invite Jesus to reconcile you to God. Follow him through the door that he has opened into the presence and embrace of a loving Heavenly Father.